Mark chapter 15. If you look there, continuing the series titled Kingdom Come. We've been exploring what the Bible has to say about the kingdom of God, and I think today's message is the most important one so far. Some people don't see how what the Bible says about the kingdom has anything to do with the way we live daily life. And, and some people, and I think you could include some prominent Bible teachers in this, make no connection between God's kingdom and what Jesus did for us on the cross. They seem to be two separate tracks. And it kind of gets laid out like this. The teaching of the kingdom was and is important. But when Jesus offered the kingdom to Israel, he was rejected. So rather than setting up the kingdom at that time, Jesus went to the cross as a sacrifice for sin so that people could be forgiven and then go to heaven when they die. The kingdom plan was put on hold for now, but it'll be dusted off when Jesus returns and sets up a kingdom on earth during the time known as the millennium. That's one way of looking at it. Um, The strength of this scheme is that it both acknowledges the importance of the kingdom and the importance of what transpired on the cross. Its weakness is that it divides the two. It issues a bill of divorce, really, between the cross and the kingdom, and they go their separate ways. The kingdom concerns itself with the rule of God, while the cross deals with the forgiveness of sins. And the two have little to do with each other. And the theological children of both camps kind of ignore each other or complain about each other. But, you know, it's a problem. It's a problem for one thing because it suggests that a person's sins can be forgiven while he or she remains outside of the kingdom of God. For another, it disregards what happens after the cross. You know what Jesus talked about with his disciples after he was raised from the dead? It's a question worth asking. They spent 40 days... And Jesus appeared to them over a period of 40 days. And they talked about what? After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. If God's kingdom plans have been shelved for the time being, why was that the subject of Jesus' teaching? We'll get that straightened out. That idea also overlooks the preaching of the apostles, both Jews and Gentiles. When Philip, who was one of the leaders of the early church, went to Samaria, you know what he preached there? He preached the good news of the kingdom of God. That's Acts chapter 8. When Paul went to Ephesus in Asia Minor, do you know what message he brought? He spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. That's Acts chapter 19. At the end of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28, when Paul was a prisoner in Rome awaiting sentencing, what was he talking about? The kingdom of God. First to Jews, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets and to Gentiles. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught them about Jesus Christ. See, if you divorce the cross from the kingdom, the cross becomes a stepchild, a kind of plan B that provides for the next life 
but is only indirectly related to this one. But if the kingdom was put on hold when Israel rejected Jesus, why was he still speaking to the apostles about it after the resurrection? Why was Philip proclaiming the kingdom of God to Samaritans in the early days of the church? Why was Paul preaching the kingdom of God both to Jews and Gentiles at the very end of his life? The fact is, the tale of the cross is not another story, but the same story, the kingdom story, as it reaches its climax. The cross is the portal between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. In the cross, we see the guilt of this world, its wrath and its hatred of God, so often concealed. But in the cross, we see it displayed for all to see. In the cross, we see humankind as we really are, rebels and usurpers. We have usurped God's place. And when he and Christ came to take it back, humanity did what it's been doing ever since the garden. It's level best to get rid of him. But if we've taken God's place in the cross, we see God taking our place. And we see something else that's often hidden in our broken world, at least to our eyes, God's unfailing love. Even our rebellion and hatred can't stop it. In the cross, we see displayed both humanity's hatred against God and God's hatred against sin. We see humanity's disloyalty to the king and the king's faithfulness to his word. It's a place of shame and of grace, of death and of hope. The cross opens up on two worlds and becomes the border crossing between them. It's through the cross that God has made a way to escape the kingdom of darkness with its hatred and its self-worship and enter the kingdom of heaven with its love and worship of God. The kingdom and the cross go together, though not even an archangel could have guessed it beforehand. Let's read about it from Mark's gospel, 15th chapter, beginning with verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads at him and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. 
He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Now let me catch us up. Just before the events narrated in our text, Jesus was arrested by the temple guard and what appears to have been a mob of 'er ne'er-do-wells under the auspices of the Jewish authorities. The Jewish authorities. He was taken first to be interrogated by the former high priest and then tried by the Jewish high court known as the Sanhedrin. Before the Sanhedrin, Jesus was charged with a religious crime, with blasphemy. He was mistreated there, beaten, mocked as a false prophet. Then the Jewish religious authorities had him sent to the Roman civil authority. But before the civil court, they didn't mention the religious charge at all knowing that the Romans would have rejected it outright. Instead, they claimed that Jesus had been arrested for inciting a rebellion, a charge they knew that the Romans would have to take seriously. In the course of the Roman trial, Jesus was again mocked and tortured, but this time not as a false prophet, but as a laughably preposterous king. As Mark relates this, he is totally aware of how ironic it is. The Jews mock Jesus as a false prophet when he is really, and Mark made this clear in the very first sentence of his book, the Son of God. The Romans think of him as a joke and mock him as some deranged peasant with illusions of grandeur when he's really the king of kings. In verse 16, we read that the soldiers called together their whole company, or at least the ones who weren't on duty, for a little fun. And at the order's of the procurator. They found a purple robe. Purple in the ancient world was the color of royalty. And they put it on him and plaited together thorns from an acanthus shrub or perhaps of palm spines, something that would look like the radiant crown that Roman emperors wore. And then they proceeded to make fun of him. They came up to him the way a soldier might approach his monarch, but instead of saying, Ave Caesar, Hail Caesar, they said, Hail, King of the Jews. It was pure mockery. They had placed the stalk of a heavy reed plant called a columnus in his hand as if it were a royal scepter. But now someone got the idea to hit him over the head with it, which they did repeatedly, each time driving the thorns of the crown deeper into his skin. And instead of offering the kiss of homage that was customary in the Middle East, First one and then another pretended they would kiss his cheek, but instead spat on him. They kept coming, mocking, laughing until they cried. And the parody continued until the mockery became more like torture. And then it was torture. Administered with a leather whip embedded with pieces of glass and metal. And all the time this was going on, they called him King of the Jews. King of the Jews, King of the Jews. When Pilate brought him out to present him to the crowd, he said, here is your king. When the wooden sign stating Jesus' crime was affixed to the top of the cross, it read, King of the Jews. Again, the irony is that he was the King of the Jews. Mark knew it, we know it, but the people around him failed to recognize the time when God, their king, had visited them. And when an inkling of the truth began to dawn on some of them, most notably Pontius Pilate, they turned from it as fast as they could. They didn't want to know it. 
To recognize Jesus as king would mean change and challenge and admitting they were wrong. It was easier just not to see. Now, Mark's use of irony doesn't reach its peak here with the mocking torture of the soldiers. It gets more pronounced after Jesus is paraded through the streets to the place of the skull, which the Jews call Golgotha, and the Romans Calvary. Normally, a prisoner would carry his crossbeam to the site of the crucifixion first. And once there, he would be lashed with that leather whip embedded with metal and glass and then be crucified. But in Jesus' case, it happened the other way around. See, Pilate thought that scourging Jesus first might satisfy his accusers and the trial could be dismissed. He knew he wasn't guilty. So he had him beaten before he was sentenced, but he had badly misjudged. Jesus' accusers were not satisfied. In fact, when they saw him bruised and bleeding, their bloodlust became insatiable. Pilate eventually gave in for reasons we're not going to go into now and sentenced Jesus to death by crucifixion. So Jesus was forced to carry his cross through the city after being scourged rather than before. But by that time, he had lost so much blood that he was too weak to stand under the weight of the beam. And so the soldiers impressed into service a Cyrenian named Simon and forced him to carry the crossbeam. And just as an aside, the fact that Mark mentions Simon's two sons, Alexander and Rufus, by name, strongly suggests that the early church knew these men. And the additional fact that Paul greets a Rufus who was part of the church at Rome where Mark had connections makes one wonder if he might not be this Simon's son. If so, here's another example of how God can use something terribly bad, the abduction of this poor man, taking him from his family, forcing him to carry Jesus' cross, how he can take something bad and turn it into something good bringing Simon's family to faith in the Lord Jesus. When a person like Simon is in the middle of one of these severe mercies, he usually can't see God's hand in it. But he can learn to expect that everything that happens to him will be used for good and for God's glory. We can learn to expect that. Look at verse 29. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said. He can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. There's something chilling about this. One thing, you would think that people would avoid going near Golgotha on this day. But there is something disturbing about the human soul, a fascination with darkness, with shame and pain. People passed by, verse 29 says, and they shook their heads at him. Can you see them? Some of them employed by the governing religious body, we know that but others just passers-by, making faces, laughing, hooting, pointing their fingers. What's wrong with people that they could be so indifferent to human suffering? What demonic evil 
haunts humanity. Worse than the passers-by were the religious leaders. These were people whose piety was universally recognized. They knew the Bible backward and forward and were painstakingly scrupulous to keep all of their religious rules. But here they were, spewing venom, laughing at a tortured and dying man and heaping insults at him. They're enjoying themselves. Their religion had ordered their lives, but it hadn't purified their hearts. They had enough religion, as Jonathan Swift once said, to make them hate, but not enough to make them love. Mark has used irony often in his gospel, never more than in this chapter. And his irony reaches its zenith with the comment made by the chief priests and teachers of the law in verse 31. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. And for once they were right. It was ironic, but true. In fact, it was ironic because it was true. He could only save others if he didn't save himself. The cross could only become the gateway between the kingdoms of darkness and light if he died on it. The religious leaders, and these are religious professionals now, not like the Pharisees. These people are people who get paid to be religious. The teachers of the law, the chief priests, they stood and sneered. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. As I read their taunts this time, I imagined what they would have done had he come down. He could have, you know. In fact, he will. They would have been looking for a hole in the ground where they could hide or calling on the mountains to fall on them. But had he come down, he would not be the Savior Had he come down, he would have turned from his father God just as Adam once turned, as Israel's kings had turned, as all of us had turned. Jesus stands in the place of the first Adam, but unlike him, he obeys God. He stands in the place of all of Israel's kings, but unlike them, he doesn't turn from God's will to find life in some other source. He stands in the place of you and me, who have often chosen to go our own way in contempt of God's authority. But he says, not my will, but yours be done. Come down from the cross, they say, offering the same temptation he faced in the wilderness and then again in the garden. But once more, he refuses the temptation and entrusts himself to God. His is the ultimate act of surrender. He does what we never could and never did. He offers himself to God in perfect obedience, in absolute trust. The way of the kingdom is the way of Christ, not the way of the chief priests and teachers of the law or the way of the soldiers in the Roman army. It's not the way of force, but of faith. It's not the way of power, but of submission. The way of the kingdom is always the way of surrender. Too often the church has chosen power over surrender. But I think when the church looks most powerful, 
is probably when it is least oriented to the kingdom of God. When Thomas Aquinas visited Rome, the Pope took him on a tour of the glories of the Vatican. At one point, after showing Thomas works of art and treasures of gold, the Pope, in an allusion to St. Peter, quipped, You see, Thomas, in this age the church can no longer say, Silver and gold have I none. To which Aquinas answered, Yes, Holy Father, but neither can she say, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. Whenever the church chooses power over surrender and ambition over obedience, she loses both power and obedience. When she saves herself, she can't save others. The way of the kingdom is the way of the cross, and the way of the cross is the way of trusting surrender to the Heavenly Father. Don't miss the fact that it's the king himself who dies. The king of Israel takes Israel's place. The king of kings takes your place and mine. He dies for sins, dies to end the rebellion and open the way to God. You see what all this has to do with kingdom? We have lived in the kingdom of this world of darkness and hate and selfishness and we followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. We were born into it and have lived by its rules. We've lived among and as members of the rebellion. Like Adam our father and like Israel's kings and like everyone we have ever known, we've turned from God and tried to find our fulfillment in some other source than his will. When God's word has conflicted with our desires, we've ignored it. When God's will is conflicted with our goals, we've flouted it. We have colluded with the enemy, been willing participants in the rebellion. That's why C.S. Lewis said, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. But at the cross, God offered pardon. He granted forgiveness. He offered amnesty to members of the rebellion and a way into his kingdom. Repentance is the life-changing gift of seeing that we've been on the wrong side. Faith in Jesus transfers us to the right side, from death to life, from sin to righteousness, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And it happens at the cross. This is what St. Paul, who remember, preached the gospel of the kingdom to the end of his days. This is what St. Paul wrote. The Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. God has made you capable of entering his kingdom. How did he do that? He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. The cross is the gate between kingdoms and Jesus is the key. How do you cross? That is, how does God bring you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? You surrender. You surrender. You declare that you have been a sinner. That is, a rebel a citizen of the kingdom of darkness, and you acknowledge Jesus as your new and forever Lord. This transfer from one kingdom to another is nothing less than a new birth. 
The person who is transferred is nothing less than a new creation. His or her life begins anew with a fresh identity and fresh hope and a new purpose for life. And it's all pure mercy. No wonder St. Peter says, once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The cross and the kingdom go together. They are inextricable. You can't understand one without the other. St. Paul writes of Jesus, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once, he says, you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. God reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry, the message of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting rebels, men's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. It's kingdom language. And it's cross language. See, everyone belongs to a kingdom. Either the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of light or the kingdom of darkness. In one kingdom, people swear allegiance to Christ and follow his ways. And the other people swear allegiance to themselves and follow their desires. In one kingdom, people trust in riches. In the other, they trust in God. The one kingdom is characterized by darkness. In that kingdom, people call darkness light. And they practice the fruitless deeds of darkness. The other kingdom is light. It's transparent. It's open. And it produces a very different kind of fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Everyone in this room... Everyone you know, everyone everywhere belongs to one kingdom or the other. But here's the, f- the thing. Since our first parents turned from God, every one of us has been born into the wrong kingdom, into the rebellion, and must be born again into the kingdom of light that only happens through confidence in Jesus Christ. It doesn't come about Naturally, but spiritually. You don't drift into the kingdom of God. You are brought into it upon your confession that Jesus is Lord, the true king to whom you swear allegiance now and forever. So let me ask, have you confessed Jesus as your Lord? You can't do that with words alone. But with your life, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you haven't done that, you're still on the side of the cross that faces the kingdom of darkness. You're still part of the rebellion. But perhaps you've been coming to believe in Jesus. Your mind and even more your heart has been telling you that it's time to cross into the kingdom of God, to live differently, to become a new person. Have you seen that the life apart from God is not the one you want? And that the way into the life that you do want, the life with God, is through a connection to Jesus Christ. 
If so, I invite you to switch sides. Choose God's kingdom and a new life right here, right now. Now let's pray. Before we pray, you just close your eyes. God has been opening up things to your mind and to your heart. And you've seen more and more and you realize I am not in his kingdom. I'm still in the other kingdom. I'm going to ask you right now. Will you confess to God that you're a sinner? That is, you're a rebel. You're on the wrong side. You have not been his person. And will you acknowledge Jesus right now in your heart as your Lord from now on forever? Will you believe in him, the one who died for you? If so, would you tell him that right now? then would you tell someone else that? Come find me after the service or some, someone else who is already in the kingdom of God and say, I made a decision today. Would you tell us? God, hear our prayers and accept our thanks for what you've done through the mighty work of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and King, through whom we pray.